Hey, everybody. I'm Kevin Sullivan for the Yes Network, and a sincere thank you for downloading Curtain Call. And to my left is none other than a sports media legend, and I'm not saying that because you're standing right in front of me, Mr. John J. Filippelli. Flip, how are you today? I'm good. I, I like the way, Kevin, you said to my left. You know, this is not a visual <laughs> medium, but that's okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's very Setting the scene. Very nice. They're very kind of you to say that. Thank you. Be honest, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think you'd have a podcast? No, I mean, it's only recently I found out exactly what a podcast was. So, <laughs> I, no, I never thought I would have one or be sharing one with you, but it's exciting. You know, we've uh, we had a, an interesting experience our years working at uh, doing Facebook, Facebook Live. Uh, and yes, and it was three a lot years. Of, three years. It's yeah. a long time. We did a lot of shows. We had a lot of fun together. And uh, I guess this is the next step. So, we graduate. It's graduation day. Yeah, I just felt bad because we had to let go of the hair and makeup lady. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> we don't have to look so good anymore. I know, but she did wonders. Uh, we will miss her and we wish her well. So, yes, for way of background, we did have a Facebook show, uh, Facebook Live. It's called Curtain Call. So we, we have the same name. Um, but now we're making the change to audio podcasting. What can we expect, Philip? Why don't you tell the listeners? Uh, I think we'll, we can expect the unexpected, although we have a couple of central themes we'll be, we'll be uh, trying to adhere to, which is talk a lot about Yankee baseball because we have a background in that and uh, we love it and it's fun for us and uh, hopefully for you. And uh, we will call upon our relationships that we've built over. I've been in the business 45 years. Kevin's been in a long time. We know a lot of people and a lot of very interesting people. So we're hoping that we can grab them for a little bit of time and they could share some of their experiences uh, with you on curtain call and uh you'll find the time well spent so that's the big picture of what people can expect uh for episode one though i think we're going to talk to david Cohn, right a little oh, bit later on looking forward excited. to that I am too. uh we'll talk a little big picture of yes you know how we became how we became yes um the hoops we had to jump through yeah quite a few on the air which um, yeah. i wasn't there but i know you yeah, I was, and we had a lot of hoops to jump through, that's for sure. But, yeah. but you know what, it was uh, any journey that, uh, you know, is worthwhile has uh, a lot of steps to it, and sometimes there are little missteps, but at the end of the day, the journey is the journey, and this has been a fascinating uh, 18 years. It has, and in addition to that, um, I think we have to talk current events, Yankees, the trade deadline right. just passed. Yeah. Uh, with that, there wasn't a lot of activity. Does that concern you at all? Well, I would have liked to have seen the Yankees obtain another starting pitcher. I think that uh, I don't think that that's a secret that uh, it's an area that the Yankees need to shore up. And I was uh, expecting a starting pitcher. I, I, listen, it's it's not easy to make these deals. I mean, you, we don't know that people have no trade clauses, and there are reasons that deals that you want to make don't get accomplished. Uh, but uh, I know the Yankees. Obviously, we realize that they obviously, obviously realized that they needed starting pitching, and I, and it just was. I guess they, the, the talent wasn't there for them to address it, and the sacrifice, the cost, would probably would have been too great. And I think that's probably what happened. But, and you know, at some point we'll talk to Cash and we'll get some clarification on that exactly what happened. But uh, that's my guess is that I know it was a need of ours, and obviously they were trying to address needs, and it didn't happen uh, for a variety of reasons. And we'll try to find out why. But I, but certainly the, here's the bottom line. The Yankees needed a starting pitcher, and they didn't get one. So we'll have to take it from there. Yeah, you said a variety of reasons why this didn't happen. Yeah. For me, bottom line, yeah. the reason why it didn't happen is because there wasn't anybody available. Anybody that they thought giving up what they were going to be asked to give up. I mean, I, I think part of this is it isn't just prospects sometimes. Sometimes the prospects don't match up to the talent you're trying to get. You're trying to get a Grinky from, from Arizona, for instance, uh, and what you have to offer is not really what Arizona needs. So they'll sit there and say, well, well what else you got? And then, okay, now, now we're past the minor, the minor league the prospects, and we're on a big league roster, and everybody kept asking for Glaber Torres, and the Yankees are not going to make that deal. Glaber Torres is a, is a superstar in the making. He's been a terrific player for them. And, you know, you, you're addressing one need, but you're creating an opening up a need of another position, which I know they didn't want to do, although starting pitching means a lot, particularly in October. Right. But Granky wasn't coming here, right? right. Scherzer wasn't going. If Scherzer was going somewhere, then I'd be upset. I would be too, but but you know I, the fact that uh, we couldn't get Granky is one thing. The fact that Houston got them got him is, I mean, hurts. I, I think that hurts. I mean, the road. I think the road to the World Series is going to go through Houston, and I think uh, Granky will play will play, could play a, a very large part in it. I mean, you already got you already have Verlander and you got Cole. I mean, you you throw in. 
you throw in Cranky in there. I mean, that's yeah. that's a formidable threesome. In a postseason, all you need is three starters. So that's pretty solid. And and they and they can hit. They play the game well. They will be forced to be reckoned with. And I think the Yankees' biggest challenge to the World Series will be Houston. Yeah, couldn't agree more. On the plus side, you look down the road a little bit. You look at people like uh, Luis Severino and Dylan Batances, right? If and that's a big if. If they can come back and perform, that's like making a trade right there. No doubt. I mean, I think that's what the Yankees were thinking, is that they have enough belief that Severino and Batanzas can come back this year and be major contributors. Because if they do come back, I mean, Severino can come back and pitch anywhere near the form that he was in when he got hurt. I mean, that's, 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 that's an ace. So if you can get somewhat of an ace-like performance out of him, that will help the Yankees. And you also have to remember Herman has been terrific, but he's got to be on an innings limit. I mean, he's a young kid. He hasn't pitched his first year. I mean, you can't throw somebody out there and throw him 200 innings in their first year. And he's rapidly approaching. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do with him. They start skipping starts with him because you want him in October if you can help. If you can get him in October, you want him there too because that gives you a formidable one too if it works out that way. You know what surprised me a little bit, Flip? Uh, the Red Sox were also quiet. And with that bullpen, and there were bullpen arms out there. You, you know, that, that surprised me as well. I really thought, I mean, that's obviously a need area for the Red Sox. So, I mean, the Red Sox, as, as, we, as we're talking about, it, are like 10 games behind the Yankees. You got Tampa somewhere in the mid seven and a half, something along those lines. So, you know, nobody's really out of it. I mean, 10 games is double digits is a lot. But the Red Sox are playing the Yankees four games this weekend. So they come in and they can sweep them or take three, you know, they'll get, they'll kind of inch their way back in. But, but at the end of the day, I don't know how that's going to play out, but I will tell you this, their weakness is their bullpen. And and if they don't address that, I don't see them going very far, no matter what. A lot of people were talking about Bumgarner heading into the deadline. Um, That obviously never happened, but for San Francisco, will that end up being a mistake for them? Well, the fact that they're they're in the wild card race, I mean, everybody's in sort of that second wild card thing. Uh, no matter how many teams are in front of you, you've got – they're in it. They're like, I think, two games out in the wild card. So, And there's a couple of teams they have to contend with. It's a gamble. I get it. But at the end of the day, they're not out of it. And it's Bochy's last year. You know, I, I think they want to really do their best to make a run and to go as far as they can I mean, if, uh, for no other reason than for Bochy. So I, I, that's why I think that – they were sort of reluctant to make deals. You could, they, they would have made deals if the people were willing to blow them away with, uh, on the return. But I don't know that they got blown away. They obviously didn't because Bumgarner is still a giant. Shifting gears a bit, I'm going to throw some names at you. Luke Voigt, Gary Sanchez, DJ LeMayu, Brett Gardner, Giancarlo Stanton, Dylan Batances, Luis Severino, Miguel Andujar, Greg Bird. I could go on and on this storyline of the year. The IL. The IL. Yeah. That team that I just named would have been a contending team. No doubt. Right? No doubt. I mean, are we, are, are Yankees fans still concerned? You know, what's been amazing is how, how the players that they have found and, uh, you know, Cashman, Brian Cashman and his group have done an incredible job. Tim Nearing, first and foremost, is something that gets a mention here because I know that he scouts a lot of the players that the Yankees have won, whether it was, uh, um, whether it was uh, Voight, or was DD? You know, he's responsible for DD, and so he's he's done a really good job of scouting for players. And and uh, the Yankees have uh, you know re- have been able to cover what has been. You'd say, well, if there's ever an excuse to not win, it would have been with all those players gone. But the Yankees have not only filled the, filled the breach; they've excelled with the with you know Shella has done an incredible job. Maven came in and did an incredible job. The Yankees have gotten help and support from places they didn't expect it. And I will tell you, if you're going to win a championship, the key to it is always. How do I get help from unexpected places? Where and that, Mayu has been unbelievable. I mean, and people forget he was an all-star in Colorado. They just—he's not people's radar. He is now. He's been incredible. He's in the MVP conversation. That's—I know he's on IL now. Hopefully, coming back soon. But at the end of the day, he's been terrific. Yeah, and yeah. the good news is you're going to have Sevy back soon. You're going to have Batanzas. and Sanchez, Sanchez and too. Sanchez. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so I think the uh, story is no reason to be concerned. At least, at least from my standpoint. You know, the Yankees have a comfortable lead. It's not an insurmountable lead. They, they just can't forget the, their teams behind them. But they're in a comfortable position, and they have a lot of talent. And, yes, they have a, a two 
Perry needs it. And I don't know, you, you hope that Severino comes back, and they hope anyway that Severino comes back and can be anywhere near the Severino he was before, because if he is, he, he can carry the day for them. And you've got to careful how you manage Herman. But if those things happen, the Yankees could absolutely win the World Series. Shifting gears a bit, I, I promised that we would talk about the beginnings of yes at the beginning of this podcast. Um, I'd like to do that because I'm excited to get to Comb. So I'm kind of rushing this, and I apologize to that. But I want I want to talk to Cone. Cliff, you started this network, right? Well, I was one of the people who started, but there were obviously other people involved. First and foremost would have been George Steinbrenner and, and Randy Levine, team president, Lon Trost. Uh, they had a lot to do with this network. And Goldman Sachs, who was a principal investor, and there were people who really uh, had a lot to do with this, but, I, but certainly I played a part in it, yes. Where were you when you first heard yes? It, it probably wasn't even called yes at the time, right? Uh, it was the, it didn't have a name. It was it was the Yankees are starting their own television network. I had heard it from a couple of sources. I had a lot. Of, I was working as vice president over at ABC Sports, and I you know I knew a lot of people in the game. I had worked on the NBC Game of the Week for many years. I'd produced World Series and playoff games and All Star games, and so I, I knew the game. I loved the game. I've been around the game and have friends in the game. And I heard from a couple of people that the Yankees might be starting their own television network, and I heard my name associated with it, but I didn't. They were just rumors. I didn't, I didn't put a lot into it, and I, I didn't think at the time to investigate it because I, I was very happy where I was employed. So you heard your name attached to it before anyone even talked to you? Yes. Wow. That would make you feel good. Uh, yes, I, I suppose it did. But, I, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I mean, I had been around the Yankees for a while. I knew Mr. Steinbrenner pretty well. I liked him a lot and had a lot of respect for him, but you know, I knew that working for him was not going to be easy. And I didn't know if that's in that part of my life, I was going to make a, a move like that. Uh, and, but ultimately I did meet with him and I met with Randy Levine and I met with Lontrost and they sort of, I mean, they kind of talked me into it. They really did. I, I didn't know that it was something I really wanted to do uh, because I knew the challenge of it was going to be enormous. It wasn't just putting a, starting a network from scratch. I mean, if anybody wants to try that, I, I don't suggest that that's going to be good for your longevity because it's, it's really is unbelievable working 20 hour days because that's what you wind up doing. And I didn't know that we could do it because we didn't have a lot of time. This was like, this was September of, of 2001. And little did I know the horror that was going to happen on September 11th, the horror that every American felt. And, and, and that day we'll never forget. And, but in New York particularly, and then trying to do work after that was nearly impossible. So we were faced with a ticking clock, an enormous ticking clock, and not enough time to get things done. And I was concerned about that. So after you get hired, tell me, what's the first thing you do to say, hey, I got to get a network on the air? I knew that we could handle the editorial. I wasn't concerned about, I knew we'd find announcers. I mean, I had done the, a project called the Baseball Network, uh, and I won't bore everybody with the details of that, but that gave me a chance to see every, every, every um, announcer in the country. And literally, I got a chance to know, and some I had worked with or knew from my prior relationships in the game. So it was going to be find the announcers. It was going to be put a production team together, a producer, director, support staff, associate producer, ADs, all the people it takes to put on a game. Uh, you know, the graphics people, graphics designers, mobile units get technically, I mean, I'm, I was going to worry about the editorial. I hired Ed Delaney and Mike Webb, who turned out to do a great job to, to do handle the technical. It's getting the signal from one place to another, you know, making sure it gets to your house and you can watch and see the game and without the signal going away and hear it. And that's was their responsibility. And all stuff I don't understand. Well, most people don't, but when you turn on your, all you know is when you turn on your set, oh, it's a miracle. There it is. <laughs> and you know what? They, they're the ones who provided that miracle. I worked on the editorial. They worked on the technical. And like I said, we didn't have any time to get it done. And there's so many million stories here about what happened. But uh, it's, it's incredible that we actually did get on the air. So how did you come up with the shows? You know, right now we look at Yankeeography. We have Yankees batting practice today. All those. Yeah. How did those, those all came from your noggin, right? Uh, well, a lot of them did. I mean, Yankeeography, Center Stage. I, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner said to me, I was in charge of the production. Then one day he says, oh, by the way, you're in charge of programming. I'll, I haven't programmed VCR. <laughs> that's an old term for what is now a DVR, I suppose. I, I, I didn't done that. I didn't program anything. We said, good luck. You're in charge of programming. 
And Randy Levine looked at me and laughed. So, okay, now I'm in charge of programming. So he gave me like a week to come up with programs. So I sat down in my, in my house. I got my little napkin out and I started writing on napkins. And I wrote, you know, biography of, of great Yankee players. I said, oh, I'll call that like Yankeeography. I know that I was actually going to call it that. It was a working title. Then I said, I love long form interview shows. Like, you know, we're going to do a long form interview show. You really get to know somebody. You know what? I'll, let's do that. Let's call it Center Stage. Okay, that's Center Stage. I want to do a kid's show. I worked on a kid's show. I worked on... Uh, I worked on a, a show that was based on the PBS show uh, uh, where you go, the traveling road show where people would come oh, yeah. look at memorabilia. What's this, what's it worth? That's what we called it. So I had a lot of ideas, a lot of things. A lot of people gave me some stuff, some ideas. That, you know, the, the obvious stuff was there rerunning old Yankee games, which became Yankee classics, you know, rerunning the games as they exist. But remember now we're faced with what do we do in the winter? We didn't have the nets yet. It wasn't the Yankee nets. So eventually we got the nets and that solved our winter uh, need for programming, but we we got it from whole, some variety of sources, a variety of suggestions. But I I remember when I did make the presentation to the Yankees, I sat down, we went through all that, and Mr. Steinbrenner said, "Oh, I love, this is great, this is great." And I I got N E. I wrote N E at the end of the napkin. He says, "What's N E?" I said, "Not enough." We don't enough what? I said, "We don't have enough programming." So he looked at me, he goes, "Get those two guys." And I said, "Those two guys? Who? Those two guys?" He goes, "Get those two guys." And I said, "Those two guys?" He says, "In the afternoon, those two guys." And I said. Oh, Mike and a mad dog. He goes, get them. That, and I said, you know, yeah. I thought about it for a second. I go, that's five, I don't know, like five, five and a half hours, whatever it was. I said, that's great. We five and a half hours. At the time, there were no simulcasts. There was one. I miss that. I miss, yeah. There were no sports. This was going to be the first sports one ever. So I said, you know what? I really love the idea of this. So now all I had to do is find them and convince them that this was a good idea for them, which I was eventually able to do. Innings eaters. Innings is exactly right. what it Five plus hours, they're innings eaters. That's right, baby. That's who like we need. We, had, we needed a lot more than that, but, but they gave us a lot. And they also, we could talk about news stories in the moment because they were on the air. Was, they, that's where they would turn into sort of a news source, although not principally, but they could, you, they could address and talk about the sports topics or the news topics of the day, which is important to you to a network. With personality. With personality, awesome. correct. Right. We don't want to just stand there and say, here's the news today. Right. No, we didn't no. want that. We did, certainly didn't want that, but but uh, but they gave us a lot, and, and that was I, you know that was Mr. Steinbrenner had a lot of contributions to yes, and that was one of them. Do you think you delivered on his vision of yes? Well, I, I th well I hope so because I believed the same things he believed. I believed in quality. I, I mean, I didn't want to. I said I want I want a, a large complement of cameras and tape machines. I want I want replays that, that you get when you watch the NBC game of the week at the time, which was the staple of things, or was one of the staples. And I said, I want that kind of compliment. I, you want quality. This is the only way to ensure quality is we have enough cameras, enough tape machines to capture that. So we're doing playoff caliber on, on, a, on a local level, although Yes was never, believe me, Yes was never a local, local network. Name only. Name only. It really was never a local network because it's, it's the Yankees and the, 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 the reach was broad and the brand, the brand was extensive and they were the Yankees. So, you know, it was never, we were never just a regional network. We were something meant to be something more than that. And the only way to do that, to deliver on that was to deliver on quality and give the Yankees a product that would mirror, mirror on the field, what they did, what they tried to do. We tried to do obviously the TV sense, try to capture that. I really think we did. And, and, and over the years, I mean, we've become, yes, has become the gold standard. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the people who work at yes. And who made it possible. I mean, you know, you, you stand on the shoulders of everybody who works for you and works with you. And that was really a collaborative effort of likes of which I haven't seen in 45 years. So I'm thrilled that we were able to do it here. And I'm thrilled that we were able to deliver to the Yankees on what the, their vision was and what our promise was. Well, that's a lot of pressure, right? Because the Yankees are the most iconic brand no, in no all pressure. sports for yeah, sure. No, right? pressure. No, no pressure. So how much were you sweating when uh, you were about to go on air? A lot. Was it I mean, like 8 a.m.? What time? What? Uh, we, no, we went. I think we went at twelve noon, if I remember right. And we started with a what we call a Barker show with Susan Wallman and Fred Hickman, telling the world what Yes was going to be about. Yeah. And, uh, so that was an like an hour show. Then we did like an hour pregame. So and then we had a, a spring training game. It was March, and we came on spring training. And everything was like great. And I remember, I was so proud of what was going. on. It was great. And I get a phone call, and it's it's, it's Mr. Steinbrenner. And, and I'm expecting, like, we're on the air. It looks like a baseball game. This is all work. We got audio. We got video. We got everything going on here. It's, like, great. And he says to me, uh, I can't understand the writing. I can't see the writing. I said, writing? What writing? He goes, the, the writing on the screen. I said, the graphics? He goes, yeah, make those things bigger. <laughs> we make it bigger. He said, make those things bigger. I said, I just can't take a graphic and make it bigger. It's not like instant coffee where you pour the water. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't work like that. Yeah. Uh, he said to me, well, well, I need that done. You got to do that. 
I said, right. so everybody in control and was looking at me. I didn't want to disappoint. I said, he just, he said it was great. He loved every minute of it. Yeah, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to go down that road. But I mean, he was interesting. He challenged you to be great. He always challenged you, no matter how well you thought you were doing. That was the great thing about him. He knew what to challenge you to make you better. I mean, and I took it as, I mean, there were times he didn't get it. And I didn't know, instead he was trying to make us all better, but he was. And at the end of the day, that's my takeaway. This is one of my takeaways, many of George Steinbrenner, whom I, I really, really respect him. And in many ways, love. I mean, I thought he was a great person. And when I was going through some stuff with my son who was battling cancer, um, there was nobody who could have been more supportive and more family oriented and understood and, and would help try to help you through what was probably the worst situation of myself and my wife's uh, life. I mean, uh, no question. And he helped us get through it. He was just remarkable. So I owe Mr. Steinbrenner a lot. And I had a lot of respect for him and a lot of, actually a lot of love for him. Now that uh, Mr. Steinbrenner has passed, you're starting to hear those stories, right? While he was alive, he liked to hide them or keep them secret. Yeah, he would always say, if, if, you know, if you do something good for somebody and somebody else finds out about it, that it mitigates the good. You know, it's taken away from the good. If you do, you should just do it and not, not look for attention or praise. And, I, and he really was like that. I mean, he would, there were stories, I mean, I know, they're not, I know they're true because I know they're true, where he was a fireman or a policeman would pass away in the, in the line of duty. And, and he'd say, you know, find out who that, the family is and make sure the kids go to college. And I mean, people don't do things like that. I mean, uh, not many anyway, but he did. And he wanted attention for it. He just did because he felt it was the right thing to do. He felt compassion for people. Going back to the personnel side of yes, who was your first hire? Fred Hickman? I... Uh, well, my first hire well, technically was Ed Delaney who helped us put the network together. But the, uh, my first, my first on hire, yeah, yeah. uh, it was probably Fred because we needed, obviously we needed a studio host and he was, had worked for, at TBS for many, many years and uh, was a staple of TBS's coverage. And, you know, I said, well, that's, that'd be a great hire. He knows the studio. And uh, I was looking, you know, I looked at him, John, the late John Saunders, who I loved dearly and wanted him, you know, as well. I mean, there were people we wanted that some people we got, some people we didn't get, but some cases, the second or third choices actually turns out to be the best choice. So Jack Ford was somebody who was interested. Oh, interested wow. to maybe to do center stage. I mean, we talked about him for that and then we couldn't get him. And I said, I want to give it to Michael K. If Michael K turned out to be great in it. So sometimes, you know, you just don't know how those decisions are going to work out. But when you have good people and you talk about hiring good people, you know, you usually um, sometimes uh, it, it just has a way of working itself through. Now you hired Michael K. Um, he hadn't done TV play by play at that point. No, yeah, uh, so I mean, he was great radio, on the radio, radio yeah. John. Um, why Michael K? What, what was the, uh, there's something about Michael, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner and myself, Randy, we, we looked at a lot of people, you know, we really did. And, and, you know, George was from Cleveland and he had some favorites he really loved from Cleveland. And I didn't know that they would be exactly the right fit. Some people. So, you know, we went back and forth on some things, some things, you know, I was able to get what I thought would, we needed other times it was it really was George got what, what George Mr. Steinbrenner wanted to get and it turned out that they were probably good hires as well so you know we it was it was a collaborative effort and we had to sort of vet it through the process but and we did a lot of that a lot of vetting through and another uh you like how I just moved yes spots in the middle of the podcast yeah I like how you did that <laughs> but just to finish on K yeah so um we went back and uh we couldn't really reach a consensus on some people. And I, I said, how about Kay? And he said, well, they didn't want to break up the radio team. And I said, well, the radio team is great, but the of Sterling and Kay, I said, they're great, but you know, you, this is television. This is your network. I mean, we, we need a, I need somebody who could sort of be the face of it. And I, like I said, we had gone back and forth and he said, all right, right. It's, I'll give you Kay, but this better work. And I, you know, it's like, it was George being George. And, uh, and I got it and I understood it. And, uh, we turned to Kay, and Kay's been a real staple on our network for 18 years. And I, I personally think he's done a great job. And he's had a, had a really great career at Yes and then ESPN Radio as well. So uh, Michael's been an instrumental part of what we've done at Yes, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. I actually, uh, I miss his voice. I didn't yeah. think, right? Yeah, he's How's it been a couple weeks? Surgery. He's been out a couple of weeks. He's probably had a couple more now, looks like. so. But uh, we wish him well. We love him, and we hope for speedy recovery. And it's not an easy thing. We don't want to rush it. His health is of the first priority, first order for us, obviously. And but you know, we've done. Listen, we have Bob Costas working for us, which is that's, that's great. Pretty, that's yeah, pretty, that's good. Get you know, Bobby a long time. You know, we've worked together at NBC for many years. So we should try to get him on the podcast. I, I'm going to try. We'll try. We, you and I will try. You can make the phone call, and I'll try to give it to you. <laughs> I, I think we can get. It. I, I, I think so. We sure we can get Bob. Yeah. What else should we get? Maybe we should leave that to the, the listeners. 
You know what? If there's somebody out there in the world of sports or entertainment you think we should try and get, let us know. We're, it's, uh, it's not just our show, our podcast. It's yours as well. So let us know what you think. We're, that we, we want to know. Absolutely. Hey, and the, here's the good news, Flip. Yeah. You don't even know this yet. Yeah. We have a uh, Twitter handle. We have a Twitter account. We do? Yes. Wow. And they could tweet us at Curtain Call Yes. That is at Curtain Call Yes. At Curtain Call Yes. Yes. No, it's Johnny Carson. You know, Karnak. At Ed McMahon. So you brought up Johnny Carson, VCRs. Ed, yeah, I'm really dating myself. <laughs> I really am. Sorry about that, folks. My intern this morning, I asked her to test the call for me. Yeah. And at the end, I said, all right, just hit the pound sign. And she just stared at me. Like, <laughs> hit the pound sign to get into the call. She goes, what's that? <laughs> I go, the hashtag. <laughs> oh, hashtag. I know what that is. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the world in which we live. It's it's it changes uh, every day, and you know it's uh, it's a challenge for everybody to keep up, including us. But you know what? I think we're up to it, and you know I'm excited about this show and where it goes and where it could go. So we we we, we will absolutely need your help. But uh, but listen, if you like what you're going to hear, you like the show, please subscribe and let your friends know. And uh, very important, yeah. We'd like to continue doing podcasts here. We promise we won't let you down. Great, we'll a lot of fun. We'll give you the news. We'll give you entertainment, and uh, it'll be a good listen and you know what else we'll give him david cone david cone is our first guest i can't wait for david how about we take a quick break and then we come back with david what do you think i love that idea so we'll be back with more curtain call and our very special guest david cone right after this fox sports go puts the pinstripes in the palm of your hand now watch the yankees when you're on the go and never miss a moment stream yankee games on fox sports go yankee streaming is brought to you by montefiore doing more Okay, welcome back, everybody. Our, our guest this week on our person-to-person segment of Curtain Call is David Cohn. Uh, David Cohn had a 17-year career in the big leagues. He was a five-time All-Star. He won the Cy Young Award in 1994. He's a five-time champion, world champion. It's a lot of hardware. David, I mean, this, this is of accolades, an accomplished broadcaster. Sort of goes on forever. Now we can add best-selling author to your, your long list of uh, interesting things to your credit. So let's start with, um, I want to start a little bit with the book. Uh, I'm not big on books. I, I'm not. Uh, uh, but I really, really enjoyed Full Count. Uh, it made the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations to you and Jack Curry. Uh, Thanks, Flip. It was, uh, Jack did a great job with it, obviously. Yeah, it's a great read. I mean, I'll tell you the reason that I enjoyed it so much was you were so honest. It was so raw and you, you were so accountable. I mean, you told it as you saw it. You told, talked about the great. You talked about the good. You talked about the less good. I mean, it, it was real and you really bared your soul. And that was part of why I, I, th- I think I thoroughly enjoyed it as much as I did. But there was a, one thing in particular in the beginning of the book. Where you talked about what it meant to be a pitcher, what pitcher, what it meant to stand on the mound. Yeah, you know, I, I think at a young age, I, I understood that the, you know, that the pitcher was the center of attention. And uh, I think it takes a little bit of ego to want to be in that spot. And I, I certainly had enough ego to, to really relish being on the mound and being the center of attention and all the responsibility that comes with that and the anxiety, too. Uh, I still remember my mother, Joan Cohn, yelling at me from the stands to throw strikes, David, throw strikes. And the pressure you feel on the mound, even as a 10 year old, I still remember those feelings and those anxieties. And that never really changed really through my, through my big league career. And I think that was part of, part of the object of the book was to, to kind of tell about those emotions and give you a different perspective on what it's like to be on the mound and be under pressure and to feel the anxiety and to, to lose your confidence at times. And then also what you do to overcome that and, and how you deal with that uh, along the way. And uh, I think that's probably the best part of the book is, uh, you know, talking about those, those issues and what it really feels like when, when you're on that mound and, and you are the center of attention on center stage. I, you know, I was also I found fascinating was your relationship with your dad. I mean, obviously you had a great loving giving relationship, but uh, your dad was your first coach, really. And your dad didn't, uh, uh, your dad drove you. You drove you to be, help become the, the person that you became and, and the pitcher that you were obviously became. Yeah, he really did. And, you know, I think the, the further removed I get from those days, the more I appreciate his sacrifice uh, along the way. You know, my father was a blue collar guy. He worked the graveyard shift and uh, he really sacrificed a lot for his family, but he was always there for me. When it came time to, to go to practice, um, 
whether he was dog tired from working the graveyard shift or whether he was in a bad mood, he always was there for me and he always found time to, to take coaching seriously. And, uh, he was a fanatic. Uh, he was an amateur pitcher himself in, in his childhood in the Kansas city area. So, you know, he had that love of the game. He had that love of pitching and, uh, he really instilled that in me at an early age. And, and he really did everything he could to, to, get me to the next level, whether that was through his coaching or finding me another coach uh, in the local area that could help give me some tidbits along the way. Uh, you know, he was just so instrumental in, in every step of the way through my amateur career. Uh, we're talking with uh, David Cohn, five-time All-Star, a Cy Young Award winner, a five-time world champion, and currently a broadcaster for the Yes Network. And uh, I got to jump in. I'm sorry, Flip. Okay. You said it before, but you always have to add the New York Times bestseller. And I want to bring that up again, because, David, you've had all these accolades that Flip just listed off. Where does bestseller sit for you? Well, it's, it's really uh, an honor to, to be part of a book that, that makes that list. Um, you know, it was, it was uh, a bit of a surprise that we made the list right out of the gates. But I, it also made me appreciate Jack Curry that much more, too, as well, because he used to work for the New York Times. And I know how much that means to him. And it's something that can never be taken away. Uh, it's a tremendous achievement, uh, especially when you, when you think about that there's a lot of baseball books out there. There's a lot of books about pitching, but uh, this one seemed to resonate a little bit more. And uh, I think it would probably was because Jack did such a good job of bringing out kind of a different look, an honest look uh, uh, about what it's like to be a pitcher, including all the vulnerabilities that come with being a pitcher. And I, I've had that uh, comment from people that have read the book uh, about how they, they view pitchers under duress a little differently now, uh, how they have a little bit more empathy for pitchers under the gun and when they can't throw strikes or when they fail on the mound, I think they have a better understanding of what that feels like and what pitchers go through when things don't go so well. And uh, I think if that's one of the byproducts of this book, then that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of. One of the things with the book, uh, you know, as a wannabe baseball player myself, I say wannabe because I never made it past high school, uh, I could never relate to David Cohn, the professional baseball player. What I can do, though, I found myself oftentimes in the book, is relate to David Cohn, the wiffle ball player. So there's a lot of wiffle ball in the book, which I appreciated. And I get in this argument with some of my friends. Tell me, David, were your coaches, did they ever tell you stop playing wiffle ball as a kid? Because in our day, it was you're not allowed to play wiffle ball. It's going to mess up your swing. No, you know, I, I, I'm very thankful that, uh, you know, that my dad, as, as we mentioned earlier, really encouraged wiffle ball. And I think I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, there's certain things you remember from your childhood, like it was yesterday. And you can't remember what you had for lunch yesterday in real time. Uh, there's something that I always remember from my childhood. It, it was the day that my dad bought a floodlight and put a ladder on the back of our house and climbed up that ladder and put a floodlight on the back of the house so we could play night wiffle ball games. And, you know, we, we were so pumped. We were so excited. Uh, my brothers, uh, me, my father, my mother, our whole family just kind of gathered around and we had our first night wiffle ball game with that floodlight blaring on our backyard. And, you know, I'll just never forget that night. It, it was as if it happened yesterday. So I'm really thankful that, that nobody ever discouraged me from, from playing wiffle ball. David, I want to, I want to uh, talk a little bit about some of your career accomplishments and moments in your career. Uh, in, in 1988, you were part of a, a Met team that featured you know, an incredible amount of star talent. It was Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry and Keith Hernandez, Gary Carter, uh, Ron Darling, or Jesse Roscoe, to name some. Um, and you fitted, you had a great year. You were 20 and three that year. I was amazed to see you didn't win the Cy Young that year. That year. Earl Hershiser won it, but uh, you had a fabulous year, 20 and three. And then in the postseason, um, you, uh, you poked the bear a little bit in the presence of the Dodgers and, and Tommy Lasorda. And uh, you wrote a column and they read it and they didn't take too kindly to it. You wanna, can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's really true. I mean, it, it didn't seem like that big of a deal uh, when Jay Horowitz, who was the PR director for the Mets at the time, uh, approached me about, uh, you know, ghost, you know, doing a column with Bob Clappish. Uh, uh, I think they were going to pay about 500 bucks to do it, <laughs> which for a rookie, I, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but I'm like, yeah, okay, an easy 500 bucks. But 
it turned out to be uh, a huge mistake. Um, you know, I said some disparaging things that that uh, that kind of uh, you know riled up the Dodgers. And Tommy Lasorda was their manager, and he was a master motivator, and he knew what to do with a gift like that. And uh, I think when I walked out to pitch Game Two of the LCS in that series against the Dodgers. Uh, that every one of their players and training staff were on the top step of the dugout yelling at me and heckling me. And it, it clearly impacted me. I was so nervous. I was so embarrassed by the whole thing that I was completely distracted from pitching. And I, it really cost me in that game. And it cost the Mets in that series. Uh, you know, it's something I never forgot and something that I learned a hard lesson early in my career it really is my first full year in the big leagues. Uh, that I learned a really tough lesson at the expense of losing the game in the playoffs because, uh, you know, I really was overwhelmed from nerve. I really uh, wasn't myself in that game. And it was a direct result of doing a newspaper column uh, that was supposed to be, that it was really supposed to be, you know, very simple and about my feelings on pitching in the playoffs as opposed to something that was used completely differently and something that, had I been able to see a final copy before it was actually sent out to the wire, I would have not let it happen. But once again, you know, you live and learn. It was a lesson hard learned that, uh, you know, uh, what you say is always on the record, no matter whether you intended to be on the record or not. You know, David, I know you a lot of years now. We go back to the NBC game of the week. And I will say this, that a lot of players uh, don't, seek publicity or they don't want to be the center of, they don't want to answer a lot of questions and, you know, they just assume play the game and, and not deal with the press. Uh, you were always accountable for whether it was things, great times or sometimes things were a little less than great. You always stand up, you were always there, you always took the questions and you always gave an honest answer. And that's my takeaway. My takeaway for you is many things because I know you many years and I have so much respect for you, but that particular, the way you would handle not only the good times, but but the times that were less than good, and obviously the, the situation with the Mets. Yeah, we had a great time over there, great career there, and five or six really good years there. But you know, there were that that incident. But you know what? As you say, live and learn. And uh, you know, you you moved on. You uh, you were started with the Royals, went to the Mets. You then went to the Blue Jays, where you helped them win a World Series. Uh, you were a late season acquisition, and you did incredibly well and helped them win a series. And then uh, you wound up going to the Yankees, and uh, your Yankee career was just as it fascinating if not more so than any other aspect of of your career and um, you had to come back in, in 1998 you had to battle something that was very difficult and again it speaks to your grit and your determination and your bulldogness that that if there's such a word as bulldogness i think i just made that up Kev. i have no idea what that means but we're going to go with that word um hey you're the boss came back from 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 an, from an aneurysm and um, take, take us through that a little bit but what what that was about diagnosed and what you went through and what your feelings were about all that yeah, it was, a, it was a very scary time. You know, I you know, I didn't know what the word aneurysm meant. I knew it was a scary medical term, but I didn't really know uh, anything about it. And I certainly learned in a hurry, how, you know, how serious it really was. And uh, um, it was uh, something that, um, you know, I didn't know uh, that I'd ever pitch again. Um, there wasn't a lot of basis for comparison back then. Uh, there wasn't another pitcher who could say, well, he went through this and had this surgery and he was fine and came back and pitched. Uh, I think that was really one of the first ones, certainly on the major league level, that, that had to go through something like that. And uh, there was really an unknown. Even when I came back and pitched, uh, you know, I missed four months uh, after having a surgery to repair the aneurysm. And when I came back, uh, even the doctors who did the surgery weren't sure how my arm would react, even though they, they gave me the green light and said, go ahead, you, you should be fine. But uh, there, there really, as I said, there, there really wasn't somebody to look to who had been through it before. So uh, I was in uncharted waters, so to speak. And uh, being able to come back and, you know, it was, uh, it was in 1996 and, uh, it was the start of, of the dynasty for the Yankees. It was the first World Series championship that the Yankees had had since the 70s, and it was the first of four that were coming. So uh, I'll always remember 1996 very fondly, uh, being able to come back and you know recover from that aneurysm and, and then go ahead and pitch in the World Series in Game 3 uh, against the Atlanta Braves, which is probably – one of the biggest games I've ever pitched and uh, maybe not the best, but it was a gutsy performance and it got us back into the world series and flip. I know you were 
you were in the truck producing those games at that time. So I think you understand probably as much as anybody how important that game was for the Yankees. You know, I've said this, I think I've said this to you off air many times uh, about that game three, how what an incredible performance I thought it was because the Yankees lost the first two games at home and they, they didn't just lose. They were, they were embarrassed by the Braves. The Braves really put on a show and the, and the Yankees had no answers the first two games. And I remember talking to you and you said, you know what, I'm getting the ball in game three. I know we're going to be in Atlanta, but it's all going to change. I'm going to change it right now because uh, I don't like the way this is going. And, and if I don't change it, I, it's balls in my hands. Going back to that philosophy about being a pitcher at the center of attention and, and controlling the game. Well, forget the center of attention part. Controlling, controlling the game, how important that was to you. And you did. You went out. That was as gutsy a performance as I probably have seen in, in, my, in my 45 years of being around the business and doing, being in the business. I don't know that I've seen a, a performance that was gutsier and a, a performance that was more needed than that particular one. Because again, you remember that that brought the first championship. So you've got to win one before you win four. So it was incredible what uh, that performance and what it was about. So again, tip of the hat to you there. Um, I want to just move on a little bit if I can, David, Um, because there's so much to cover and I I appreciate your time. Um, A couple of things. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, obviously we want to get to the perfect game, but before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about your days with the MLBPA. Uh, That's the Major League Baseball Players Association. And, you know, you talked about your family growing up and being blue collar and how active you were in the, in the, in the union. And the union was, was a time, it was an interesting time in the baseball history at that time. And, you know, and again, uh, you had the, the, uh, the good fortune of working with the great Marvin Miller and also, you know, having on the other side of the fence is the owner, George Steinbrenner of the Yankees. I mean, for, uh, they were polar opposites for a while, but, but again, at some point they sort of merged in their philosophies. But, but the MLBPA was so instrumental in what happened in baseball in those years. And you were, you were at the forefront of it, David. So uh, a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, it was uh, an incredibly uh, tough, difficult situation to, to be part of the Players Association during the strike of 1994. And, you know, obviously the World Series was canceled that year, and it's the only year in the history of baseball that there was no World Series. So there was a lot of blame to go around. Uh, the players got a lot of heat. The owners got a lot of heat, too, as well. Uh, the Players Association that at that time felt like we had no other recourse, uh, that we had to go on strike at the end of August, that it was our best leverage to, to try to get the, the owners to the bargaining table and bargain in good faith. And it just was not meant to be. Um, and it really created uh, a lot of anxiety amongst the, the players, uh, including right up until the point where the owners were trying to use replacement players the following spring training. Uh, there was talks of players crossing the picket line there was talks of breaking the union uh, there was talks of a, sa- a hard salary cap and a lot of the rights that had been gained through Marvin Miller and all the way back to Kurt Flood uh, a lot of those rights were going to be lost if we didn't stand up and fight so we really felt like we were fighting the good fight on the player side but at the same time I think it was really difficult to remain diplomatic during that time and understanding that no matter what happened that we all were going to have to live together. We all were going to have to try to heal the game after the strike. And I think um, that was the toughest part uh, was trying to, to remain or, or to sort of keep a level of diplomacy uh, that uh, you were willing to be open-minded, but at the same time you were going to stand up for your rights as a player. And to me, that was always the battle. It was never about greedy ball players asking for more money. It was about protecting our rights. And for the players, it's always been about rights, about freedom of movement, uh, uh, about at what point in your career can you choose where you want to work, uh, you know, and, and actually choose a city where you want to play. So those were important issues back then. And, and I'm very happy that the Players Association now, uh, certainly compared to then, uh, has the same amount of rights or a little bit more, even though the, the current collective bargaining agreement has been hammered and has been criticized. I still feel like the players are in much better shape now because of, of that situation and what we went through back in the mid nineties. And there's a lot of teams that uh, didn't recover. I know the Yankees in 94 had a great team and we'll never know how good that team was. And the Montreal Expos had a great team, had Pedro Martinez on that team. And, Baseball never recovered in Montreal, and they eventually lost their team. So there was a lot of collateral damage from that era. 
I, you know, as I said before, I think there's a lot of blame to go around, and I certainly think that the, the players deserve their, their share of the blame. But nonetheless, I'm still proud that we stood up for our rights, and I still feel like we did the right thing at that time, at that moment in time, knowing what we knew back then. Yeah, the, you know, there's no question that it was a it was a an interesting time in the history of the game. Uh, like you said, the the uh, the work stoppage that uh, the cost the season, uh, and the Yankees and the and the and the Expos looked they were like they were poised to to be the the forces and to wind up in the World Series, and and we'll never know as you said. And it's unfortunate that it happened, but the, you know the byproduct is that the game has has grown since, and you know there's been peace in the game and. Uh, we, we hope that that continues because, you know, the fans, you know, they, they honestly, they, some understand the issues, but a lot of them are just, you know, they're, they're fans. They want to enjoy the game. They don't want to get caught up in the business of the game. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, a tough time because the season, it did cost the season. And, you know, and, and when two sides are believe what they believe and they're entrenched in their beliefs, it's going to, you know, it's going to end in a situation where there's, there's nobody won. There's, there's no winners in a situation like that. The game sort of lost. And I'm just happy that, you know, we've had peace, labor peace, and everybody's sort of working toward the end of like, a, there'll be a new CBA soon. And, and uh, hopefully that that goes smoothly and uh, there'll be peace in the game for a long time to come. Because at the end of the day, as you know, it's, it's really the, 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 the players suffer, the owners suffer, and the fans suffer. So it's, it's an industry that we all love and we want to, we care about and we want to protect. And so it's in our best interest to make sure that uh, everyone's best interest to make sure that uh, that doesn't, uh, hopefully doesn't happen again. Uh, I want to just talk about a few more things with you. Uh, the, the the perfect game, uh, July sixteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, it's you wake up in the morning. Are you thinking, you know what? I'm getting up and going to pitch and say, "Oh, it's Yogi Berra Day. It's a special day at the stadium. Uh, you know, I think I'll enjoy the day. It's going to be fun to pitch." What's your mindset waking up that day? You, you know, Flip, I was fully aware of uh, that it was Yogi Berra Day, and at at that point in my career. Um, you know, I had played for the Mets for six years. I was on the Yankees for four or five years at that point. And, you know, I, I had pitched on several days that meant something in New York. Um, I pitched on the day uh, Joe DiMaggio died. I pitched on the day that Mickey Mantle died. So I knew about the fanfare. I knew what the, the uh, you know, what the excitement level would be like at the stadium that day. And I was thrilled to be pitching on Yogi Berra day. I thought, in my mind that, that it was an honor, that it was, really was an honor to be a pitcher on a team with such such history, such tradition, and that uh, the Yankees honor their ex-players as well as anybody ever has in, in the game and, and continue to do so with old-timers day and all the things they do. So, you know, I understood exactly what was going on, and for me it was a welcome kind of distraction. Uh, I was more interested in Yogi than I was my own warm-ups before that game or what my mindset was before that game. And, it just put me in a really good mood and a really proud mood to be able to be to be able to be pitching on that day. And, you know, in, in hindsight, looking back at it, that was really a blessing for me because I was I was worry free. I, my mind was completely clear. Uh, I was um, enjoying Yogi and Carmen, his wife, riding around in a, in a convertible Thunderbird around the warning track at Yankee Stadium before that game. Everybody was in love with Yogi. The crowd was in a great mood. Uh, it was just a great atmosphere to pitch a game at Yankee Stadium. And, you know, the, as I said, the, the more I look back on that, the more I realize what a gift that really was to be able to have that start on that day. David, take me through. There's 27 outs, and you're at 24 now. So you've got to get three more to go. And you – you know, you lead the, you know, the players, your, your teammates don't want any part of you because they, they, they're superstitious and they don't want to break your mindset. And so you kind of go down the tunnel and you go in the clubhouse a little bit. What were you doing when you went in the clubhouse realizing you're three outs away from something that only a handful of players, pitchers in the history of the game have accomplished? Well, I, you know, I, I think, you know, Jack did a great job in our book uh, of describing the anxiety that I was going through, you know, and I think maybe a lot of people would probably uh, – probably feel like a pitcher that's on top of his game would be supremely confident in that situation that, uh, you know, that he would be, uh, you know, on his game. But uh, I certainly felt good about the way I was throwing the ball, but I was a nervous wreck uh, throughout the, the, the last inning. I mean, uh, looking for somebody to talk to and nobody will talk to you because obviously everybody's superstitious and nobody wants to be responsible for being a jinx or, or having any, any sort of uh, responsibility with regards to superstitions in the game. And, 
you know, I was just kind of storming around the clubhouse. I changed my undershirt because it was such a hot day. And, uh, you know, I remember just nobody to talk to. And finally walking into the bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror and putting my hands on the sink and having an out loud conversation with myself in the mirror. And, you know, I, I, I described to Jack Curry that if you would have seen me doing that, you would have thought I was crazy. Uh, I mean, it was just something I'd never done before or probably would never do again. But I just needed to blow off some steam. I needed an outlet and I needed to talk myself through that situation. And in those situations, you're sort of uh, trying to have positive thoughts in your mind, but also negative thoughts creep in at the same time. And, you know, the first thought I thought was, how are you going to react if you hang a slider and you blow this thing? You know, what are you going to do? And uh, it it meant so much to me. It was, uh, it was something that I'd sought my whole career. You know, I probably had a half a dozen games with the Mets where I had a one hitter or no hitter after seven innings and something always happened. Something, you know, sometimes it was a mistake pitch. Sometimes it was out of your control. It was a bad hop or it was a, you know, it was something that uh, that happens through the course of a game. Kind of that John Sterling, that's a baseball Susan moment that could happen at any time. And uh, so that that was really it. It was me talking to myself out loud in the mirror and trying to pump myself up, trying to prepare myself in case it didn't happen, trying to discard those thoughts and get onto the, the positive sports guys, psychology thoughts and finally wrap it up and walk back out for the ninth inning. And, and you know, I, I talk about the adrenaline rush when you walk out to warm up for the ninth inning and the Yankee stadium crowd is on their feet and into everything you do and all eyes are on you. Uh, that adrenaline rush was like nothing I've ever felt before. You know, I've, I've described it as I could feel my hair growing, you know, my head was on fire and my face was beat red from the adrenaline on a hot day. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to describe the emotions you're going through at that moment, the pressure you're under, the anxiety that you feel, uh, preparing yourself for anything that could happen, good, bad, or ugly, I, I think was something that I'll never forget. And I think uh, we described it pretty well in the book, and I think Jack Curry, as I said, again, did did a great job of, of talking about that moment and, and putting it into words because it was a, a surreal moment for me in my career and something that I'll never forget. In the third out, the twenty seventh out, uh, you go to you you go down to your knees. It's one of the most iconic moments of video that we have in the history of the Yes Network, or or baseball has in the history, uh, its own history. It's an incredible moment, and uh, when you realize that you you're pointing and you go down to your knees, you you know you're getting that out. Uh, just just quickly, David, uh, just what 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 went through your mind then? You know, it's it's not something that you can rehearse. I mean, that wasn't part of the conversation I had with myself in the mirror, you know, before the ninth inning. It wasn't, okay, when you do this, we're going to, this is going to be your reaction. Uh, that, that never entered my mind on how to react in the event that you do come through and you do get it done. And so uh, naturally that was uh, something I described when I dropped to my knees is, uh, um, you know, I think I saw uh, a similar, a similar, uh, scene when uh, Jimmy Connors, I think, was playing in the U.S. Open and got beat by, I think it was Manuel Ortega, uh, was a Spanish tennis player who had a once-in-a-lifetime moment, and he dropped to his knees when he beat Jimmy Connors, I think, back in the 70s. Uh, I believe I was 12 years old and a big tennis fan at the time, and that that just stuck into my mind, so maybe subconsciously that that was my reaction. I, I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of, but I remember tremendous relief. I remember that you're stunned by the moment. You're trying to process the moment. Uh, what just happened? What do I do now? Uh, your teammates are reacting to you uh, in such a way that they carry you off the field on, 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 the, on their shoulders. Um, it's, it's just a remarkable moment to be a part of. And how to handle it just never came through my mind, never entered my mind. Uh, it was all spontaneous and in the moment and, trying to process everything was just an incredible feeling. Uh, so yes, you know, that, that wasn't rehearsed, although subconsciously maybe it was in the back of my mind from, from a childhood experience that I had. All right, David, we all know the answer to this here at yes, but I have to ask it anyway. How close are you and David Wells really? And I ask this because this is insane to me, right? Two friends who are as close as you guys are, when you think of the thousands of pitchers that have pitched, and what were you, the 16th perfect game, 15, 16? 
Yeah, 16. Cuz was 15. Yeah. The fact that you guys threw perfect games for the same team back-to-back years and you're as close as you are is just amazing to me. Yeah, you know, I mean, we were teammates with the Blue Jays back in 1992, so we got to know each other then. And then, um, you know, during the 98 season, we became very close. And, you know, I mentioned it in the book with Jack Curry that so close, in fact, that I went to Joe Torre and told Joe Torre to let me have Boomer, that, uh, you know, that I will take him from here, that, you know, Torrey was having problems with, with uh, trying to get through to David Wells. It was very headstrong at times. And, and I knew David, and I knew what he needed. And I knew he just needed a friend, and he was the type of guy that needed a pat on the back rather than a kick in the butt. And so I gave him that pat on the back. And throughout the 98 season, we ended up staying away from the team hotel so that we could hide and, and, and have some fun together and pump each other up. And, and uh, I think at that point is when we really became close was the, the 98 year. And he was the best pitcher in the American League that year in my mind. And he was the big, biggest reason why we were able to win the World Series in 98 was his contributions that year. And, and uh, I think the roles kind of reversed where I almost uh, became close with him and, and almost needed his friendship more than he needed mine uh, originally. And uh, I think to this day, Joe Torrey probably doesn't know the full extent of uh, what happened that year in 98, how much we really helped each other and how much that led to a historic season. Uh, when you have a pitcher like David Wells on a team like the 98 Yankees, uh, it, it was a big deal. And uh, we really became close that year. So uh you know, up until that point, we were friends. But in 98, we really became close when we started hanging together. And we had some fun times together, both on and off the field. And it just just seemed to work. It, w- it was the right place at the right time for two pitchers on the same team to kind of embrace each other and help each other through. And it really paid big dividends, I think, especially in 98. Uh, David, you mentioned Joe Torrey. And uh, there was a there was an interesting moment in your career in this, during the Subway Series, uh, two, year 2000, uh, where uh, there was a critical out that really had to happen. And it, it was a turning point in the game, and Joe Torre saw it as that. And so he, he was pitching out of the bullpen then, and he called you out of the bullpen to get a critical out. You want to take us through what that was about, that, that bat was like to uh, Mike Piazza, I believe. Yeah, I, I knew beforehand that uh... – that I would be the guy for Mike Piazza if, if the need arise, you know, uh, during that game at any point. So I was certainly ready for it, but in the fifth inning with two outs and nobody on base, I was a little surprised, uh, frankly, that Joe Torrey was going to take Denny Nagel out of that game and put me in with, uh, with two outs and nobody on base in the fifth inning. And Denny Nagel was one out away from qualifying for the World Series win. So uh, I think Joe Torre caught a lot of people by surprise in that situation. But, but Joe Torre was very progressive in, in his postseason managing uh, with regard to, uh, to bullpen management. I think if you saw that in today's game, nobody would probably blink an eye. Uh, but back in, 19, uh, back in 2000, rather, you know, almost 20 years ago, that was a big deal. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why Joe Torre was so good in the postseason because of his, his bullpen management uh, during those situations. So, you know, I was a guy that was a former Met. I played six years for the Mets. We're playing them in the World Series. I was hoping that I would at least get one chance to participate in that World Series, coming off of a really bad year for me that year. I was I was injured a lot that year. I tried to pitch through injuries. It was a disaster year for me. But yet Joe Torre still had confidence to put me in that game against Mike Piazza. And uh, thankfully, I came through. I got him out, and uh, that was it. So that was not only my only appearance in the World Series in the Subway Series, but it was my last appearance as a Yankee. So uh, obviously that meant a lot to me, and I'll forever be thankful to Joe Torrey for having that confidence in me and putting me in that game uh, against probably some some other opinions that, that thought maybe that wasn't the right move, but but he did. He trusted me, and and uh, you know as I said, we're, we're talking about it now because I came through and I, and I got Piazza out thankfully. But doesn't that say a lot? I mean, Joe Torre is one of the best baseball minds uh, that the game has produced, and he had a great career as a manager. And for him to, in that situation, say, you know, it's it, it's trouble here, and I've got to take Denny out, and I'm going to go Denny Nagle out, and I've got to get this out, and I'm going to turn to to David Cohn, who's done nothing but 
excel under any pressure situation he's put in and a critical situation in the game, a turning point in the game, actually. He, he says, David, go get that out. So I mean, it says a lot about Joe Torrey. It's a lot about you so, and your relationship. So I know you guys got along well, but, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, that, that out had to be made, and, and you were the one who got it. So it speaks well on everyone's half. Well, it's a great point, Flip, and uh, it really goes to the heart of the matter with Joe Torrey, and he managed the heartbeat of the game. He managed human beings, and he still talks about that even today, about, you know, yes, there's more information. Yes, we have analytics. Yes, there's a, there's a, a lot of very smart people in there with great ideas, but at the end of the day, you're still managing human beings, and there's still a heartbeat to every baseball game, and Joe Torrey probably understood that better than anybody in the history of the game. David, before you joined us, uh, Flip and I were talking about the early days of Yes, and I asked him where he was and what he was thinking when he first heard that there was going to be a Yes Network. And I'd like to ask you the same thing, because you were probably toward the latter portion of your career. Uh, where were you? What did you think? And were you already thinking, hey, I want to work there? Um, yes, I think the answer to all the questions were, were yes. I mean, we were all were extremely excited about it. Uh, on, you know, we, we had heard the rumors for a couple of years prior that this is what the Yankees were planning on trying to do. I don't think any of us had any idea of the monumental task that that was to, to actually do a startup network from scratch. Uh, I think that, that, um, that, John Filippelli flip and everybody that worked with him deserves a lot of credit because uh, it really was extremely difficult. Uh, I was there the first year I helped uh, on, a, on a number of fronts, uh, mainly uh, helping to lobby the city council to uh, break up the deadlock uh, between the S network and cable vision at the time. And uh, yeah, I never realized politically how difficult the battle was. Uh, I certainly got an education from, from day one when I came on board. Uh, but, you know, to answer your question, I think we all were really excited about the prospect that, that the Yankees would have their own network and that what that could do to market the game. And from a player's standpoint, that's everything we had talked about in my involvement with the Players Association was, why don't we market the players better? Why are we always trashing our product? Why don't we do more to work together? And I think we all saw the Yes Network as a chance to finally do that, to finally work together in a partnership with the players, and the players could reap the benefits of having, you know, a team with their own network that would uh, market the players properly and stop trashing the product like we had done so many years prior. And all those work stoppages, all the strikes, all the lockouts were always about trashing the product. And I think we all saw – you know, the Yes Network is a bright hope that things things could change in the future and that this could be a collaborative effort and that the players were all on board. We all were excited about the, the chance to, to be a part of our own network. I think, you know, we all saw it as our network and not the Yankees network. And that's how excited I was. That's how excited a lot of the players were back then. Uh, David, uh, George Steinbrenner was obviously the architect, one of the architects of Yes. And he also was a person who came in and, and bought the Yankee franchise at a time from CBS when the Yankees weren't doing so well. And he went out and through free agency helped build the team into a championship team. He took a team, a flagship team, the Yankees being a flagship team and obviously flagship market in New York City, New York. And at a time when they were, the, they were having tough issues and times, he uh, rebuilt them into the gold standard of the industry, to, in my opinion. And he did so many things. It was Yes Network, rebuilding the Yankees, uh, and yet he is not in the Hall of Fame. Nor is Marvin Miller, who we, you talked about briefly before, who was, ran the NFLPA for many years and was an instrumental force in the game. Um, you know, I, I don't I scratch my head every time about both of them not being in the Hall of Fame. And I, I'm at, I don't know how to explain that. Do you have an explanation for that, David, or opinion about that? Because I think it's just blatant. It's, it's a yes. I agree with you, Flip. I think it's a tremendous oversight on both accounts. And, you know, we live in a day and age now where brand is everything. Even individual players are brands now. And George Steinbrenner understood that before it was popular. He understood about the brand of the Yankees before anybody else really gave it that much thought. And he did nothing but build the brand up over the years. And that's probably his greatest legacy is how he left the brand in his kids' hands uh, when he passed away. So, 
Yeah, that speaks for itself. The Yankee brand is bigger than ever because of, of his input and his understanding of that. And, uh, you know, Marvin Miller understood that too. And Marvin Miller understood that player movement and player free agency and more player rights would be more exciting baseball, would be a more exciting game. And, and it really has borne out to be true that all of the naysayers who said that free agency would ruin baseball uh, were wrong. Uh, that free agency and the age of free agency has done nothing but help baseball and grow the game. And, and you're talking about two people who really did a lot to grow the game of baseball. And the proof is in the pudding. The proof is the, the product that's on the field now as a result of George Steinbrenner building the brand up of, of, the, of the Yankees and Marvin Miller being exactly right about players' rights and free agency helping the game. So without a doubt, they both had a tremendous impact on, on the, the health of the overall game itself. And they both deserve credit uh, that they haven't gotten as of yet. And it is a tremendous oversight that they're not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you, David. Um, I want to thank you, uh, Kevin. I want to thank you. Uh, you've been a fascinating guest, and this is our, our first podcast, so you'll, you'll, you'll excuse us. Uh, we're, we've got some rough edges here we're trying to work on, but we uh, really appreciate your time, and you were, you were a wonderful guest, and, uh, and uh, good luck with the book, and good luck with Yes, and good luck with uh, all your other ventures, and because uh, you worked hard for the success you've achieved. So thank you for your time, David, very much. My, my pleasure, Flip. Anytime. Glad to talk to you.